1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Despite the very obvious human selfishness, there is also a remarkable tendency among humans that when there's danger approaching, people often think about the safety of their loved ones before they think about their own safety. And I, I think that's why when you're on the airplane, they always tell you to do the opposite, to put your mask on first before you help other people. Because when there are loved ones near you, especially those who are dependent on you, your, your immediate tendency is to help them first. And so they have to go against that tendency by telling you to take care of your mask first before the mask of others. We tend to put our loved ones first when danger is approaching. We think about them, our children, our spouses, our parents, our friends, and particularly Christians. This is part of the Christian ethic to, to think of others before we think of ourselves. Sometimes people even very nobly put themselves in harm's way to protect others from the oncoming danger. And we, we have something of that order here in the the section from last week in First Thessalonians and now this week. There is something impending. There is something coming, and they knew it was coming. And they were concerned about two groups of people. Uh, the Thessalonian believers were concerned, first of all, about others. They were concerned, first of all, about believers who had already died. And that's what we saw last week. They were concerned. They didn't have enough information. You remember that the missionaries went into town. They were there for a number of weeks, maybe months, and they were then driven out of town, and they got to teach them something about the return of Jesus, but not everything. And so they wondered, what about those who have already died before Jesus comes back? And that's what we saw last week, and Paul reassures them and said, they will be okay. They will not miss out. In fact, they will be first in line before you. And so that's that was last week. So they were first concerned about those who who had already fallen asleep, those who already died. And then, having been assured uh, that they would be okay, the next question is, well, what about us? Now we know that they'll be okay, but what about those of us who are still alive? And that's the, the situation that's described here. So first question is, will they be okay when the Lord comes back? And now the question for today is, will we be okay if we are alive when the Lord comes back? 
because the Lord's coming is actually a quite a fearful thing. In verse 1, it says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. This is, by the way, the third time Paul says that to the Thessalonians. The third time he says, well, we don't need to talk about this. And then what does he do? He talks about it. Well, not to mention, and then he mentions it. Well, needless to say, and then he says, and this is the third time, he says, we don't need to talk about your faith because everybody knows about your faith in chapter 1, verse 8. Then he says, about, about the love of the brothers, Philadelphia, we don't need to say anything because you're already doing it. And then he talks about the love of the brothers, and here he does it as well. But he is giving them credit. You know about the timing question, but there are things you don't know. So you do know about the timing question. And he says in verse 2, for you yourselves are fully aware, they already know this timing question, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So there are two images here. The first image is thief in the night. But before we get to that thief in the night, I want you to notice something that is remarkable. It's remarkable in one sense, and yet in another sense, the whole New Testament is shot through with this sort of thing. And that is this. This, this, this phrase, the day of the Lord, back in the Old Testament, is the day of Yahweh. It's the day of, of the Lord, God, the, the creator of heaven and earth. And in the New Testament, you find with great ease and great naturalness, they apply the day of the Lord to the day of Jesus. And, and this is all through the New Testament, but it's, 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 it's very clear here. They're using this expression, the day of Yahweh, and now they are referring it to the day of the Lord Jesus, putting the Lord Jesus in the place of Yahweh in that expression. Now, what is the Old Testament idea of the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh? It was to be a day of judgment, a day of judgment on God's enemies. And presumably, and I emphasize that, presumably the vindication of Israel. But the prophets show up and they turn things on their heads sometimes. For example, in Amos chapter 5, verse 18, we read this, Woe to you! who desire the day of the Lord. Now, why would they desire the day of the Lord? Because our enemies are going to get it in that day. We're going to be vindicated, and our enemies are going to be judged. So, but he says, be careful about that. Be careful what you wish for here. He says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? And so the old Israel, they were looking for the day of the Lord. And Amos says, be careful what you're looking for here because you're acting very much like the nations. And so it will go for you as it will go for the nations on that day. So this, this idea of the day of Yahweh comes with a, a gloomy, dark uh, note to it. Now, the authors emphasized this judgment aspect when we go back to 1 Corinthians. He says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. That's the second image. So, sudden destruction. They emphasize that aspect from the Old Testament that it is a day of sudden destruction. Now, let's look at these two images here. 
The first image is of the thief in the night. What does the thief in the night have to do with the timing of the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord Jesus? Well, the thief in the night comes at the least expected time. It is unexpected. You, that's, that's, that's why he chooses the night, because you're not expecting him in the night. So that is the emphasis here. And this is actually an image that Jesus used. So they're, they're not being creative here. They're using this. And actually, if, if, if you noticed in the text from Joel chapter 2, it mentions the thief coming as well. So this is an image that Jesus picked up on, and uh, he actually applied it in Matthew 24, Revelation 3, Revelation 16, and then Peter picked it up in 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll look at uh, a couple of those later. So that's the first image, the thief in the night, unexpected timing of the Lord. You can't fix the timing uh, because the thief doesn't announce beforehand when he is going to uh, enter into your home. That's the whole idea. of the, It's unexpected. And then we have the second image. The second image is of labor pains. Now, labor pains, as I have noticed, I have an experience, but as I have observed, labor pains are very much expected. But their timing is still, it's still up in the air. And there's something about labor pains is they're very sudden. That's what I've seen. They're very sudden. They come all of a sudden out of the blue, there's a, there's a time frame in which they're expected, and yet their coming always seems to take people by surprise. They're sudden, and they are also inescapable. Inescapable. Um, if, if a woman is pregnant and, and, does, and, and carries that baby to term, then labor pains will come. They will happen. They are inevitable. They are inescapable. And so this second image emphasizes the sudden and inescapable. So unexpected, sudden, and inescapable occurrence of the day of the Lord. Now, for whom? For whom will it be unexpected, sudden, and inescapable? It will be for those who are saying, look at verse 3, it will be for those who are saying there is peace and security. There's peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now it's interesting that this peace and security was a political slogan of the Roman Empire. Peace and security, a political slogan of the Roman Empire. And uh, so these were people who were saying the, the Pax Romana, the, the peace, the Roman peace, we can trust in the Roman peace. Our emperor has it under control. We are going to enjoy peace and security. And so the idea here, it's really interesting. There aren't many political comments or political digs in the New Testament, but this seems to be one of them. And it is a warning that we ought not to trust in political slogans, that we ought not to, to put too much weight on, on the promises and the slogans of the officials. In this case, they weren't elected. In our case, they're elected. But it is easy for Christians, and especially here we're in a little bit of a lull, but we're, we're beginning to, to, some candidates have already declared their candidacy for the next round of the President of the United States. So we're beginning to heat up, and we Christians need to be careful not to put our trust in, in this or that politician promising whatever they might be promising. And to extend that even more, the sudden and inescapable destruction will come upon all who trust in anything or anyone 
other than the Lord Jesus Christ for peace and security. Or to say that positively, trust in the Lord Jesus for eternal peace and security. That's the positive message. You want peace and security? We all want peace and security. That's exactly what Jesus offers. Trust in Jesus. He is the only one who can give you solid, lasting, eternal, real peace and security. So don't be caught trusting in someone or something else on that day. Now, there is an encouragement here in verse 4, because this could be frightening. He's talking about a thief in the night. He's talking about sudden labor pains. He's talking about sudden and inescapable destruction. And this doesn't sound very encouraging, does it? Uh, but then he says, but that doesn't apply to you. That's not your case. You don't have to worry about this. Because you are not in the darkness. Verse 4, you are not in the darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. Now think about this. A thief in the night can only surprise in the night. A thief in the night cannot surprise in the day. And so, if you are not of the night, if you are not living in the night... If you are always living in the day and living in the light, it is impossible that the thief surprise you in a negative way. It, it's not possible. A thief in the night can surprise only those who are in the night. Believers are of the day, not of the night, not of the darkness. To, to look at it another way, it's a, it's a funny sort of description here because he says, the day of the Lord will come for believers when? At night. So the day of the Lord will come at night. But for, that's for unbelievers. But for believers, the day will come when? In the day. In the day. Now, if, if tonight, at two or three in the morning, all of a sudden the sun is blazing, all of a sudden it's bright, and your blackout curtains are of no use, all of a sudden your, 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 your house, your room is illuminated you would jump up and say, something very strange has just happened here. But if at 2 or 3 in the afternoon, the sun is blazing, you would say, it should be. There's light. We're in the middle of the day. And that's the idea here. If the day surprises you at night, that's a bad thing. If the day comes in the day, then of course, it's welcome. That's when the day should come. And so this is the comfort for believers. And these contrasts here between light and darkness and night and day, they're broad. He doesn't, he doesn't spell out these images, but these are images that are all through the scriptures, darkness and night, day and night, or darkness and light, day and night, and they likely include two aspects. And these are two aspects that we understand because even in our, our language we use these. Those two aspects are understanding and also living. Understanding and living. When we say this in English, we say, oh, he's really in the dark about something. What do we mean? He doesn't understand. And so to be in the darkness is not to understand. To be in the light is to understand. So it has to do with understanding and belief, but it also has to do with living. And that's what the next verses talk about, living. When we talk about somebody's dark deeds, what do we mean? We mean evil deeds, nighttime sort of deeds. And so the next verses, verses 6 to 8, are kind of an interlude here. 
because in verses 4 and 5, we have the first reason why we should not fear the day of the Lord. And then uh, after verses 6 to 8 and verses 9 and 10, we have the second reason why we shouldn't fear the day of the Lord. But in the meantime, here in this interlude in 6 to 8, how should we live? If we are of the light, if we are of the day, well, then how should we live if that's our identity? And here we have this contrast between being asleep and being awake and sober. Verse 6, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So he's saying, who are we? We are day people. Who are we? We are light people. And so we should live as day people and light people. And what does that mean? Well, it means that we should be awake and sober. Actually, this is, this is exactly Jesus' call uh, when he used this back in Matthew chapter 24. Verse 42, he said, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Then back in Revelation as well, he says the same thing, Revelation 16, stay awake, I'm coming like a thief, stay awake. Now, what are these images of wakefulness and sobriety? What are, they, what are they metaphors for? Well, they're metaphors for diligent, attentive living. Diligent, attentive living. And they contrast with dull, stupefied, drugged sort of living. And so uh, that, that's, the, that's the contrast here. He says, when do people sleep? Well, normally people sleep at night. That's when they're groggy. That's when they're not paying attention. That's where they're unconscious. When do people get drunk? Well, they tend to get drunk at night. So that's when they're stupefied. That's where they're in, when they're intoxicated. He says, but you're not of the night. So your living will be characterized by sharpness, by attentiveness, by wakefulness, by watchfulness, and by being in your right mind at all times. As people of the day, then he gives some some practical, practical implications of that, or rather how to be awake, how to be sober, and that is to practice three things. And here, once again, we've heard these before. In verse 9, to practice faith, to practice love, and to practice hope. And this is a, a triad uh, of three things that we hear in different places in the New Testament, sometimes in different orders. But we've actually already heard this in 1 Thessalonians. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 2, it says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And here we see this pattern once again in Thessalonians. We hear this, we hear this once again. You're doing great. We, we give thanks for your faith, for your love, for your hope. And so put on faith and put on love and put on hope. So what you have, keep going and more and more. And this, this imagery of, of, of uh, armor 
might be kind of surprising here because he's talking about wakefulness, he's talking about not being drunk, he's talking about sobriety, and then all of a sudden he says, put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So here he uses a, a military image, and, and actually the idea may well be that when do, when do armies normally fight their battles? Well, they do so in the daytime. Why? Because they can see. Now, things have changed. We send missiles during the night and so on, and, and warfare has changed. But when armies are going at it hand-to-hand, -hand, they do it in the daytime, if at all they can. And that's the time for fighting. That's the time for having on our armor. If you look at Romans chapter 13, verses 11 to 14, we have, we have this, this imagery here, this mixture. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Interesting. Put on the armor of light. It's time to have our armor on. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, this, this imagery of the armor is actually an Old Testament image. It comes from Isaiah. And I want you to see who first wore this armor. Because this armor has been tested. It's been battle-tested already, and it's shown to work very well. If you look at Isaiah chapter 59, verses 16 and 17, you read this. He... Actually, actually, back up to 15. The Lord, Yahweh, saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So who first? Who first put on the breastplate of righteousness? Who first put on the helmet of salvation? It was Yahweh. It was the Lord. It has been battle-tested. And now he says, this armor that I have used to bring victory for myself, by myself, I pass on to you so that you might be ready as well. But the armor had to be fitted to us. The, the emphasis in Isaiah of his use of the armor is self-reliance. He looked around and saw that there was no one who could do it. So he says, okay, no one could do it. I'm going to do it. And he took up righteousness and he took up salvation and he won the victory. Now, when we put on the armor... It's not about self-reliance, but it's about reliance on him. And that's why it starts with faith. What is faith? It's, it's reliance. It's trust in him. What is love? It is the outworking of that, of that faith, love towards God, love towards others. What is hope? It is that same faith as it's directed to the future and the future promises of God. So this is, this is how we are to be awake, by practicing these virtues, this triad of virtues. And then... Going back to the argument about the second reason why we shouldn't be fearful in light of the day of the Lord is because God did not destine us for wrath. God did not destine us for wrath. Verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's set you for. 
not for wrath. But we know that that day will be a day of wrath. Read the Old Testament. The day of Yahweh is a day of wrath. Read the New Testament. It's a thief in the night. This is an aggressive image. There will be wrath, and unfortunately, there will be wrath for many. We say that with no joy, but there will be wrath for many in that day who are trusting in other things for their peace and security. But he says, for you, that's not what God's destined you for. That's not your future. He has not destined you for wrath. He's destined you for salvation. Now, if, if God wanted to pour out his wrath, as he has throughout history, he could do it from a distance, couldn't he? He could do it from a distance. Uh, look at the flood narrative. God doesn't need to show up to do that. He can just, he can just pull the, the plug on the waters from above and from below, and he, he can flood the earth. And, and he can send his wrath from a distance. But in order to bring about salvation, he needed to come near. Salvation required, even as we read in Isaiah, he looked around and there was no one else who could do it. He had to do it himself. If anyone was going to bring about salvation, he had to do it himself. And he had to come near to do it. And that's what we read about in the Gospels, that indeed he did come near. That, that most famous of, of gospel verses, John 3.16, and then what follows, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. There's the wrath, the perishing, but not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's what Paul's saying. This is not for your condemnation. This is not for wrath. This is for your salvation. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Our our, our text sounds very much like that, right? If you believe in anything or anyone else for your peace and security other than the Son of God, well, there's condemnation. There's wrath. But if you believe in the Son of God, There is no condemnation. There is no wrath. That's not your destiny. The Son of God came near precisely, precisely to save us. But how did he save us? Look at verse 10 of our text. It says, verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. That's why he had to come near. That's why the Son of God had to come near to to die for us. God doesn't die. God is eternal. He cannot die, but God become man, coming one of us. He takes on our mortality, dies for us. And why is there no more wrath for us? Because Jesus extinguished it by taking it himself. He took on himself. Even as we read in our text, he was, he was crushed in Isaiah for our iniquities. The, the punishment for our peace fell upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And so in order to escape wrath, very simply, we must believe in Christ. And if we believe in Christ, the day of the Lord will be for our salvation and not for wrath. And here Paul brings it back to the two possibilities. Verse 10, he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And it's interesting that here Paul uses this image in three different ways, being awake or asleep. Asleep, he used that last week to refer to those who had died, physically died. 
Uh, this week he used sleepiness to refer to those who are going through life stupefied. Uh, he also used it literally. He says those who sleep, sleep at night. That's when you rest and you get your Z's. So he's used this image, and now he comes back to the original image. Sleeping is, is dying. So he says, so whether we are awake, that is, we're, we're alive at the time that Jesus comes back, or we asle- we're asleep, that is, we're dead at that time when Jesus comes back, for both of us, whether we're alive or whether we're dead, we might live with him. So he covers both of the concerns that the Thessalonians had. And now he, he sums it all up the same way he did last week. Therefore, encourage one another. Encourage one another. That's what he said at the end of last week's text. Look at 4.18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And in 4.18, he's saying, encourage one another. Those who have died in Jesus are not lost. Rather, they're at the front of the line, and they will not miss out. Encourage one another with these words as you're missing and grieving your loved ones in the Lord. Encourage one another. But now he says, encourage one another as you who are alive anticipate the coming of the day of Yahweh, the coming of the day of the Lord Jesus. Encourage one another. But then he adds to that. And he says, build one another up. Build one another up. He says, just as you are doing. So not only encourage one another, but build each other up. And then he says, like he says throughout this letter, you're already doing this. It's great that you're already doing this. Do it even more. Do it even more. Why? Well, the night's almost past. The day's almost here. It's right at hand. So as you see it drawing near, build each other up so that you can be ready for that day and receive it with rejoicing. I'm happy to say that that we're doing this in our church. We're encouraging each other and we're building each other up. We have a number of ways we do that. We gather for public worship and we we encourage each other and build each other up. We meet during the week and we we look at God's word and we pray for each other. The the women have their prayer system where they have partners and pray for each other. Uh, men and women get together during the week. And, and if you're not in a situation, you're not in relationships where you're being encouraged and built up and you're encouraging and building others up, then, then get into those sort of relationships so that you can be encouraged, so that you can encourage, so that you can be built up, so that you can build one another up. This is one of those one another things that we need to do for each other. We're already doing it. Let's do it more and more. So what's the takeaway here? What's the conclusion Believers who have already died, they're fine. They're fine. Because they will be raised first and come with Jesus when he comes. And believers who are still alive when Jesus comes back are fine as well. Why? Two reasons. Because they live in the day and don't need to fear the thief in the night. And because they're destined for salvation. So brothers and sisters... Let's get on with living in the light while it is daytime and let us encourage one another and build each other up more and more as we strive to live together in the light. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that even though the day of the Lord is a a terrible thing, in many ways, for us it is not, but it is unto salvation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I pray that all of us would be in Christ Jesus in the day, in the light, believing in Jesus, so that 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 day of the Lord that comes in the night would hold no terror for us, but rather would motivate us, would encourage us to strive more and more to live in the light. Help us to build each other up so that we can live more and more in the light 
as children of the day and children of the light and to let that shine before others, our light shine before others so that people could see our lives and glorify you through Jesus Christ. Amen.